Good morning. Welcome once again to Hope and Anchor Church. Get excited. We are continuing in our teaching series, our learning adventure called Rock of Ages, where we are, yep, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> Scattered applause for, <laughs> yeah, we've been uh, walking with the Apostle Peter and we've been listening to his words in his uh, first letter over the past, oh, 21 weeks. This is week 21, I believe. Yeah, look at that. So, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. We're getting toward the end of his first letter, and then, um, you know, after that, you know that there's a second one. I don't want to pull any fast ones on people. There is a second Peter, which we'll get into as well. But this is the 21st week of the Rock of Ages teaching series, and today's message is called Furnace of Humiliation. Furnace of Humiliation. I would like to talk today about a man named Jesus. However, it is not the Jesus you've grown to know and love. Did you know that Jesus, or what we end up anglicizing into Jesus, which is pretty much a butchering of the actual name, uh, uh, was a pretty common name? Uh, more accurately, if we were to more accurately say, hey, let's press pause, let's go back and maybe get this a little more uh, accurate, it'd be more accurately translated into English as what? Someone help me out? Joshua. Yeshua, or Yehoshua, or something like that. Uh, I'm not we, we came up, well, that would bore you to tears, but how we end up through Latinizing uh, Yeshua into Jesus. Anyway, it'd even be better if we just said Ye Jesu. But anyway, Jesus. Jesus ben Sirah. Has anyone ever heard of Jesus ben Sirah? Jesus ben Sirah, or you might have heard him uh, referred to as Jesus ben Sirach. He was born in or around the year 170 B.C., and he lived in the city of Jerusalem. He was an educated man who was part of the intellectual class, writing often on themes of wisdom and of morality. He is best known, his best known and most widely circulated work is called The Wisdom of Ben Sirah, or Ecclesiasticus, and it became part of what's called the Apocrypha. How many are familiar at least somewhat with the Apocrypha, or at least you know what it is? Uh, it was part of the Old Testament Apocrypha, a collection of works generally from that intertestamental period in Israel uh, between the end of Malachi, what we have in the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew in the New Testament, uh, writings that were widely circulated and influential during those times. Now, we don't consider them part of the biblical scriptural canon. However, uh, we do ourselves a disservice to ignore them completely as if they have no value historically or contextually to what we read in the Bible. And it's also just like calling the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, uh, betrays ignorance. Calling the years between the end of Malachi, those 400 years, the silent years, the silent years, also betrays a little bit of a, a lack of insight. A lot was happening. A lot was happening. Because you notice at the end of Malachi, there's no Romans. Right? There's no Romans uh, stomping around Jerusalem. Fast forward to Matthew, guess what? Hello, Caesar. Something happened. I mean, the occupation of, of the Holy Land uh, by Rome as the Roman Empire expanded was all happening during this time. So it wasn't quite silent, just like the Middle Ages weren't quite dark, right? So uh, 
while it's not considered part of the biblical canon by most, it does contain valuable insight. The book of Ecclesiasticus, Jesus Ben Sirach's works, contains valuable insights into Jewish ethical thought and devotion. In Sirach, or Ben Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus 2, 1 through 6, Jesus Ben Sirach uh, wrote these words. And listen closely, I think this is good. My child, if you are going to serve the Lord, be prepared for times when you will be put to the test. Be sincere and determined. Keep calm when trouble comes. Stay with the Lord. Never abandon Him, and you will be prosperous at the end of your days. Accept whatever happens to you. Even if you suffer humiliation, be patient. Gold is tested by fire, and human character is tested in the furnace of humiliation. Trust the Lord, and He will help you. Walk straight in His ways, and put your hope in Him. Now, most evangelical Christians, if you were raised in America in the evangelical tradition, you're probably not familiar with the Apocrypha. And I'll admit, I've not read a whole lot of the Apocrypha, only secondarily. I've only been directed there through other things I'm reading. I've not sat down and said, let me read me some Apocrypha. You're probably not uh, familiar with the Apocrypha and th those books that are included in the Catholic Bible from that intertestamental period. But here's what they do. They help provide a valuable window, a valuable historical, cultural, and contextual window into the Jewish experience during Roman occupation and the subsequent exposure they had to difficulty and oppression. Thus, themes of faithful endurance punctuate those 400 years. During those 400 years that we talk about in the intertestamental period, they're punctuated. The writings we have from those times are punctuated with themes of endurance. I like the phrase that Ben Sirah uses in this passage when he says, you will go through the furnace of humiliation. The furnace of humiliation. What does it mean, humiliation? What words come to mind when you hear humiliation? Anyone care to share? Embarrassed, Embarrassed okay. Suffering. Suffering. Mistakes. Mockery. Mistakes, mockery, okay. Okay, good words. We hear humiliation as shame, as embarrassment, as denigration of who we are. Um, but that's not really the original meaning or usage of the word humiliation. Uh, the biblical idea of humiliation is one of virtue. It was actually put forward as a Christian attribute. That's something we should pursue. To be humble, to, to be humiliated. It even sounds weird to say, but to seek uh, experience in humiliation. You know, we talk about Christ humiliated himself in the incarnation. How is it that Christ humiliated himself in the incarnation, in putting on flesh and coming to dwell among us? What comes to mind? I mean, why would that have been humiliating to Christ? Set aside his kingship, yeah. 
moving from something really high to something less high for sure. Yes, I mean, he's setting aside his glory to come and put on flesh to incarnate, which is, <laughs> the translation is to, it, it, to put meat on, you know, it's like chili con carne, you know, <laughs> to in-meat himself to us, which is pretty gross sounding, actually. But, um, but think about the root word of humiliation and the root word of human. I mean, there's a, there's a connection here. It's put forward as a Christian virtue, as an attribute we should pursue. The Easton's Bible Dictionary defines humility this way. The, the Easton's Bible Dictionary says, uh, Humility is a prominent Christian grace. It is a state of mind well-pleasing to God. It preserves the soul in tranquility, and it makes us patient under trials. It's almost like we have to set aside pride in order to take on the proper humility to rightfully, rightly endure trials. Christ has set us an example of humility. We should be led thereto by a remembrance of our sins and by the thought that it is the way to honor and that the greatest promises are made to the humble. It is a great paradox in Christianity that it makes humility the avenue to glory. That's really at the heart of what Christ accomplished through his death. That the victory came through his defeat. That life came through his death. A great paradox in Christianity that it makes humility the avenue to glory. That when we're told to die to ourselves so that we might find true life. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology expresses humility as an aptness for grace. I love that phrase. An aptness for grace. It is the essence of faith. It is the appropriate attitude, humility. Humility is the appropriate attitude for receiving God's mercy in Christ. Why? I know I'm asking a lot of questions here, but why is it so important that we have humility in order to receive God's grace, God's mercy shown to us in Christ. Why is that prerequisite? Why do we need humility in order to really receive God's mercy? Okay, to come to where we acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. What else? Can you not have humility and still receive God's mercy? I mean, truly come to a place of receiving the gift of, of salvation? No, we must be willing to lay down our own lives, all of our rights, all of our uh, things that we feel like we deserve, all of our pride, in order to receive, to get to the place where we say, like we said earlier, all I have to offer to you, God, is my thirst. All I bring to this equation is need. I am bereft of resources. I'm bereft of, 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 of earning this. I have no rights. This is the appropriate attitude for receiving God's mercy in Christ. I love this quote from St. Augustine. 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 <laughs> However you want to pronounce St. Augustine's name. St. Augustine. St. Augustine. Anyway. St. Augustine once remarked, if you ask me, what is the first precept of the Christian religion? And I will answer, first, second, and third, humility. <laughs> the top three things you need in the Christian religion. Humility. Humility, 
Humility. It all starts with humility. The life in God inevitably leads a person through the furnace of humiliation in one way or another for our good and for God's glory. The experience in the furnace of humiliation is meant to purify, to strengthen, and to refine the faithful. I mean, that's what a furnace is used for. Uh, it's a crucible. It's to, 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 to burn off the impurities, to refine you, strengthen you. This important theme of humility is picked up then by the Apostle Peter in his letter to his beleaguered and harassed readers scattered across Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. So if you have your Bible, you can, with all this in mind, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Today, we're continuing that theme we've been kind of hitting on the last couple weeks. Suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 9. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. Does that remind you of any other things we read in the Bible? When he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. What does that remind you of? James. Yeah, it reminds you of James, right? So James and Peter knew each other, and I think they were kind of wanting to emphasize the same themes in their letters. Be glad. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian. For then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is of no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by His name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to God who created you, for He will never fail you. That's a good word, isn't it? In the midst of difficulties, persecution, accusations, all afflicting the believers, Peter reminds them to do this first and foremost. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Be rooted in faithful humility. Those familiar with the early church's experience of fiery trials that Peter refers to, they might think of Nero. Emperor Nero uh, burning Christians or having them torn apart by wild animals for sport. However, uh, that horrific reality is true, but it was mostly confined. It was fairly local that those terrible things were happening. It was happening in Rome during a relatively brief period. The persecution and abuse that Peter's readers were experiencing was more systemic. It was more multifaceted. It was, it was daily ridicule. It was daily exclusion from the marketplace. It was, it was injustices. And it only sometimes led to death. But it did lead to death on occasion. Uh, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible um, Background New Testament Commentary. That's the longest title. 
Uh, I even had to abbreviate it so much that I had a hard time in this moment figuring out what it was. Because uh, I have Zond Illust Bible Bigs.com. <laughs> Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds New Testament Commentary. Uh, it explains it this way. Uh, in the first decades of the church's existence, it quickly became clear that the church differed from the surrounding culture and that the culture did not like it. Didn't like it, whether it's this culture was Jewish or Greco-Roman. They did not like the church. This displeasure was expressed in a number of ways. Number one, there were commands and threats, physical punishment, fines and confiscation of goods, imprisonment, mob violence and lynching, and judicial execution. Along with these came public shaming and insults and economic discrimination. Christians did not fit in, and the surrounding culture was prepared to use all of the means at its disposal to force them to return to cultural conformity. Now, what did the church do to deserve such treatment? Well, first, and deserves in quotes, what did they deserve uh, do to deserve such treatment? Well, number one, they refused to take part in the normal worship life of the household, city, or state. To their fellow citizens, this implied a lack of loyalty and a rebellious spirit as undermining good order. Number two, they refused to take part in family celebrations, guild feasts, and other social events because of the connection of such events to idolatry and immoral behavior. If you're familiar with the rampant uh, worshiping of uh, just a pantheon of gods in the Roman Empire, you could worship anybody you wanted to, but you had to worship anybody. <laughs> and the fact that the Christians were refusing to do so put them in the crosshairs badly because they, they would not worship and they would not participate in the orgies, in the, uh, uh, the sexual worship rites of these different deities. So, uh, let's see. This led to stigmatizing the Christians as antisocial, haters of humanity, and the like. I think it's always interesting nowadays, anything we stand for, uh, firmly on uh, on moral grounds and as uh, tenets of our faith we're quickly called haters of humanity that's like the go-to low-hanging fruit you know it's like oh you why do you have such hate it's like uh, well it's comforting in a strange way to know that my brothers and sisters in Christ have been called haters of humanity <laughs> for standing firm in our faith uh, since the beginning haters of humanity and the like number three there was the Christian, critique, the Christian critique of their culture, the claim that the Messiah had come and been executed by the Jewish leaders in the Jewish world, or the claim that the lifestyle of the people were immoral and that their idols were meaningless in the Greco-Roman world, led to persecution. Number four, there were specific Christian practices, their acceptance of Gentiles, their stealing of the Gentile God-fearers, they're gathering together in secret, quote-unquote, secret societies. They're treating one another as brother and sister across class, gender, and racial lines. You know how radioactive that was in the first century? The Jews were mad because the Jews that came to Christ were being welcomed in. The Gentiles were also being welcomed in. Uh, men and women were being regarded as equal in the fellowship across racial uh, class, gender, and racial lines, and this was radical. Number five, there were false rumors about the Christians uh, that they were encouraging Jews not to circumcise their children or that they ate the flesh and drank the blood of babies at their ritual meals. <laughs> yeah, and? No. Uh, that they 
ate and drank the blood of babies at their ritual meals. Huh? Uh, they held orgies behind closed doors, uh, calling them love feasts, and that they caused riots everywhere they went. I mean, this is historically documented that this is what those nasty Christianses were doing. This is the kind of stuff they do. Stay away from them. They're yuck. They're gross. They're wrong. Number six, they claimed that Jesus was Lord while Caesar claimed to be the only Lord. Add to these six elements normal human suspicion, fear of loss of power in the face of a growing movement, and general jealousy, and one gets a ripe climate for all types of persecution. I know that was an extended quote, but I think he did a good job of kind of painting all this multifaceted uh, harassment, abuse, and rejection that the church was facing because uh, there were things that they were actually doing that, that really... Uh, flew in the face of the host culture, of the Greco-Roman culture, and of the Jewish culture. But then there are all kinds of accusations that weren't even true. I mean, preposterous things. But you know how things go. People believe preposterous things. I mean, and they didn't check it. They didn't, like, uh, cite sources there. They just lobbed those with everything else at the Christians. So within the furnace of humiliation which Peter's readers were living, he exhorts them not to be surprised by their fiery trials as if something weird, unexpected, or outside of God's control were happening. I mean, I'm glad he said this because that's in me. When something bad, uncomfortable, something I would never want happens to me, uh, my first response is like, what did I do wrong? Where did I miss the turn? Uh, I mean, God, clearly I'm out of your will somehow, right? Anyone else do that? Anyone else have this like automatic uh, A plus B equals C? Bad things happened. God must be mad. That's why this is happening. Or I, I must be disobedient and God must be mad. That's why this terrible thing, uncomfortable thing is happening. But Peter tells them, don't be surprised. Nothing outside of God's control is happening. Instead, when these things happen, rejoice. Rejoice. It's pretty strong, but it's like, be very glad. Rejoice. The, his readers are, through their trials, being made partners with Christ in His sufferings and marked out as God's very own family. Can we get to that place where we see that? It's like, man, hardship, the, 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 the difficulties that come for me following intently with discipline after Jesus, those actually are indicators. They're marking me out as being part of God's family. By faithfully enduring, just like Jesus did, we are promised a wonderful joy when He is revealed to the world in all His glory. In His revealing, we will be joined with Christ and we will be welcomed into His kingdom. That is our great consolation. Peter's wisdom and encouragement, it resonates quite well with the Apostle Paul's uh, sentiments in Philippians 3.10, which I think we read last week when he said, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death. Why? So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I mean, there's some deeper theology here that I think is lost in that kind of uh, just surface-level Christian experience in America sometimes. We don't think that deeper communion with Christ lies on the other side of hardship and suffering. I want to know Christ. I want to suffer with Him and share in His death so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. Hmm. 
Very early on in the faith, there was this intrinsic understanding that, number one, the way of Jesus leads to suffering and sometimes even death. That was not surprising news. Number two, faithfully suffering and uh, that faithful suffering and death identifies us in Him. That faithful suffering and faithful death identifies us in Him. And three, through suffering and death, we discover we have the sure promise of resurrection and salvation. We are safe in Him. Very often we flee and we avoid the prospect of discomfort, of rejection, and of suffering. But apparently the path to glory leads right through it. Rides right through it. God's desire, God's ambition is not to, to, like the claw machine, pick you up out and over the hardship. Because then we become flabby, weak, and inexperienced. We grow strong and lean and, and mature by going through the hardship. Whether we admit it or not, and I think this is key, whether we admit it or not, uh, oh, let me say this first. We often assume that hardship and pain is a sign of weak faith or of God's punishment when often it is the very means by which God is refining us and growing us in the very likeness of Christ. So I think there's a real tragedy there when we instantly misinterpret the difficulty. We instantly misinterpret uh, the hardship and in doing so we miss out on the exact work, the specific word God wants to do in our life. So is it good that it's difficult, that sickness has come, that hardship, rejection has come? No. But if we follow faithfully, we know that we will grow. And we will grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But here's that thing I was going to say. Whether we admit it or not, many of us hold uh, what I call a soft prosperity gospel. In the practice of our Christian faith, a soft prosperity gospel. An assumption that if we do the right things... Health, wealth, and prosperity will follow. I mean, how many here are honest enough to say, that's in my source code? I don't know if it's my upbringing, I don't know if it's just my preference, but I believe that if I live right, I stop doing sinful things, I read my Bible and pray every day, that a sort of health, wealth, and prosperity will follow. I mean, we look at the big-haired preachers on TV preaching prosperity gospel, and we're like, <laughs> morons, you know? Who believes this stuff? Who gets taken in by this stuff? But guys, it's here. It's in you and me. We have a soft prosperity gospel assumption inside of each of us. And I think that can keep us from being attentive, being available to the very way God might be growing us and leading us in this time. Is that helpful? I mean, to be on the lookout for that soft prosperity gospel in you, in me? <clears throat> Scripture's witness and the early church's testimony quickly disabuses us of that false assumption. If we actually read the Bible and look at the experience of the early believers, we're quickly disabused of that soft prosperity <laughs> gospel. Suffering for doing right is often the mark of God's approval just as it was for Jesus. This is why understanding the, Jesus' sacrifice has been such a hard thing to get your head around for so long for so many people. That Jesus suffered as the means to His victorious 
reign and rule. That through his death, his defeat, his, his uh, burial, he would rise in victory. Suffering for doing right is often the mark of God's approval, just as it was for Jesus himself. In a real way, the sufferings that God's people endure during this life are part of God's coming judgment on the world. When God is, will come to set all things right, and the word here tells us, the Apostle Peter tells us, that it is starting with his own household. What is God's own household? It's the church. God is first going to bring the discomfort of setting things to right among his family before he brings that to the world. So how do we suffer well and how do we suffer rightly? Well, let's finish up with this. I want to read you a quote from uh, Matthew Henry, that, that esteemed Scottish pastor and theologian. His wisdom on the matter, I think, gives us some good closing insight here. When called to suffer according to the will of God, Christians should look chiefly to the safety of their souls, which are put into hazard by affliction and cannot be kept secure otherwise than by committing them to God, who will undertake the charge, if we commit them to Him in well-doing. For He is their Creator, and has out of mere grace made many kind promises to them of eternal salvation, in which He will show Himself faithful and true." Learn this, number one, all the sufferings that befall good people come upon them according to the will of God. Number two, it is the duty of Christians, <laughs> duty, and that was number two. Uh, do you know I was a youth pastor one time? Um, sorry, let's roll on here. Number two, it is the duty of Christians in all, <laughs> gosh, I'm so embarrassing. It is the duty of Christians in all their distresses to look more to the keeping of their souls than to the, to, than to the preserving of their bodies. Have you thought about that? It is the duty of Christians in all their distresses to look more to the keeping of their souls than to the preserving of their bodies. The soul is of greatest value and yet in most danger. If suffering from without raises uneasiness, vexation, and other sinful and tormenting passions within, the soul is then the greatest sufferer. If the soul, has not, if the soul be not well kept, Persecution will drive people to apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Turning from the faith, abandonment of what they believe, rejection of what they, they have held to in Christ will lead them to apostasy. The only, number three, the only way to keep the soul well is to commit it to God in well-doing. Commit your souls to God by solemn dedication, prayer, and patient perseverance in well-doing. Number four, God's, or good people, when they are in affliction, have great encouragement to commit their souls to God because He is their Creator and He is faithful in all of His promises. Man, press in. There's so much good encouragement to find out there, uh, whether it's from like Matthew Henry, from contemporary sources, or from writers in the first century. There's a common theme, persevere. This is how we grow. So suffer well, suffer for well-doing. Stay the course. It is not that God is causing the hardship or the trial in every case, but He is always certainly using those hardships and trials for our benefit. God is using these to refine us, to grow us in faithfulness, and to make us more and more a partner with Christ Jesus. 
So as we walk through the furnace of humiliation with Christ in the days and in the years ahead, may we suffer well. May we have a right understanding of how God is at work, even in the hardship, even in the darkness. May we suffer well, and may we be very glad. May we be happy knowing that God will never fail. He'll never fail us. May we know that we are safe, and we are secure, and we're in good company. We, find, we will find ourselves, we are finding ourselves in the communion of our early church brothers and sisters and in, the, in communion with Christ himself and with the Holy Spirit of God. And my friends, that is great encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for his faithfulness to write this down so that it might be preserved uh, for us. Yes, that it would bring such uh, necessary encouragement to the believers who were suffering in the first century, scattered around Asia Minor, but that it would find its way to us here today. That it would speak words of comfort, of, of admonition to us, that we'd be exhorted to walk rightly even in those dark and difficult times. That we would not grow faint of heart. That we would not so quickly misinterpret where you are in the midst of those difficulties and trials. God, that we would uh, see clearly, that we would be attentive, that yes, we'd be aware of sin. We would be aware of the times where consequences of our disobedience and of our, of our, of our uh, sin habits are wreaking havoc in our life. Yes, let's offer those to you as well. So we might be healed and forgiven and restored. But God, may we understand that when we are living well and rightly, according to your will, suffering comes. And I pray that we'd have this, this deep expectancy that says, through this, God, I will find deeper communion with Christ himself, and I will find myself in the community of believers throughout history who have walked a fiery path. They've sojourned in the furnace of humiliation and on the other end, other end coming out the other side they found you with open arms saying welcome home welcome home Scott do a work in us help us root out any of that soft prosperity gospel that's creeped in and polluted things corrupted our thinking but give us a desire to grow and to be disciplined to become strong in the faith to truly have humility at the core of our expectations and of our, of our devotion. Lord, do a work in us, in us I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take a couple minutes to just sit with the Lord. There's maybe a conversation to be had here, right? If you need to pray with somebody, I would love to pray with you. I'll stand right there at the back, and I'd love to uh, grab hands and just go to the Lord together. But here's the thing. Make the most of this opportunity.